I'm Alex Ames, and this is Cloister Talk, the Pennsylvania German Material Texts podcast. Welcome to Religious Landscapes in Early America, a conversation about Johannes Kelpius with Dr. Timothy Grieve Carlson. In this episode of the podcast, we'll learn about fascinating new research focused on the Pennsylvania German mystic Johannes Kelpius and consider how recent developments in the field of religious studies can shed light on complex topics in Pennsylvania German history and culture. This podcast expands on topics covered in my book, The Word in the Wilderness, Popular Piety and the Manuscript Arts in Early Pennsylvania, published by Penn State Press in 2020. To learn more about the book, visit wordandwilderness.com. Anyone who has read about the early history of Pennsylvania or visited any of the seemingly innumerable museums, special collections, libraries, and historic sites in the region knows that the religious heritage of William Penn's American colony is diverse, complex, and rooted in centuries of history, connected to many different languages and cultures. This makes the field of early Pennsylvania religious history endlessly fascinating and always ripe for new interpretations. Each generation of scholars brings new questions and perspectives to historical source material and can illuminate important aspects of the people and events of history that have not been considered before. My guest today, Dr. Timothy Grieve Carlson, Assistant Professor of Religion at Westminster College, recently completed a dissertation at Rice University in Houston, Texas, that sheds light on a legendary mystical figure from Pennsylvania's early past. He ties his analysis to one of the most critical issues of our own time, climate change, and the impact of humans on their natural environment. Tim's dissertation project is the first full-length scholarly analysis of Kelpius, who lived from 1667 to 1707, and was a transatlantic radical Protestant theologian from Transylvania, who settled in Philadelphia in 1694. Tim studied Kelpius to understand the Protestant reception of speculative, philosophical, and religious literature in the 1600s, and how this literature shaped the Protestant response to changes in the climate during the same period. His dissertation focuses on religious life in southeastern Pennsylvania, where Kelpius and his colleagues settled at the turn of the 18th century, and then considers how Kelpius has been remembered since his death ultimately concluding that the transformation of environmental knowledge that Kelpius lived through rendered him incomprehensible to many of his later Enlightenment readers. Thank you so much, Tim, for joining me on the podcast and sharing all of this fresh new research with us today. Alex, thank you so much. I'm so happy to, uh, to join you on one of my favorite podcasts, so thank you for taking the time to speak with me. It's truly an honor, and I'm just thrilled to um, have this chance to introduce listeners to this really cutting-edge innovative work that you've been doing. But before we dive into the subject of your dissertation, I'm hoping that you can tell me a little bit more about your educational background and how you became interested in the historical study of religion. Sure. So um, I actually grew up in central Pennsylvania. I grew up just outside of Lebanon, about I suppose, an hour and a half uh, west of Philadelphia. And the area I grew up in is pretty, uh, people tend to be pretty religious around here. And as I was, you know, growing up, as I got older, uh, and, and I should say my own, my own background was a little bit less religious than many of my peers. So as I got older, 
I kind of noticed that religion was really a factor in my peers' lives in a way that it wasn't for mine, sometimes for good, sometimes for not so good, especially, you know, kind of going through the potent and uh, tumultuous years of adolescence. Traditional religions can can sometimes help, they can sometimes not so help. And I, I really noticed that this seemed to be a huge factor for many of my peers in a way that it just wasn't for me. And this kind of provoked a general interest in religious beliefs throughout the world and, and throughout history. And so when I ended up going to college, I did my undergraduate work at Drew University in Madison, New Jersey. I went to school, I went to Drew because of the strength of their religion department and their theology faculty. Uh, and while I was there, I actually ended up taking a course with an anthropologist my first semester called Cultural Ecology, which was the anthropology of how human beings relate to their environments. And uh, this course is just thrilling. The teacher, Mark Boyoli, um, is an anthropologist who specializes in the study of white hunters, basically, like American uh, hunting culture among white people. And uh, my family is not hunters, but I kind of grew up around those people. Uh, so we we just hit it off and we both shared this interest. And this sort of propelled me into um, studying both religion and anthropology at Drew. While I was at Drew, I actually, um, with this interest in how people, how uh, human beings relate to their environment under the same professor, Mark Boyoli, he encouraged me to do uh, an honors thesis on, a, on a, a project that I had been working on with him as an independent study about American Bigfoot legends. So the big hairy monster Bigfoot. Um, I was really interested in Bigfoot as kind of a cultural phenomenon, and Mark encouraged me to work on that. So this led to what ended up being my honors thesis project. And my interest in, in Bigfoot and other kind of, um, you know, I'll use the term radical. We can also use words like marginal or fringe kind of um, beliefs. Also, is kind of led into my, relig- my, my interest in religion as well. So I, d- I did not do a master's degree before starting my PhD. And uh, so I ended up at, at Rice University. So that's a little bit about my educational background. So how did you happen upon Kelpius? As a, as, a, as a research focus, and um, what led you to decide to write a dissertation about him and his world? Yeah, so uh, the first places I heard about Kelpius, this is actually kind of funny. When I was a, a kid, I had a book, it's like a travel book. Maybe you've heard of this series. It was a popular series in the early 2000s, Weird Pennsylvania. This publishing company made uh, like travel books about all 50 states. Weird New Jersey was the first one. But the Weird Pennsylvania book had a page about um, Kelpius and Company, which would have been the first place that I read about him, although I don't have a memory of, of reading about Kelpius in that book. I know that that was probably the first place where I read it. The first place where I really noticed Kelpius was in the summer as I was preparing to start my PhD. I was really kind of doing this sort of self-guided reading crash course on American religious history. And being from central Pennsylvania, figures from my area just kind of stuck out to me. So Conrad Beisel, the the newborn, another radical religious sect from central Pennsylvania, Johannes Kelpius and the group which eventually became known as the Woman in the Wilderness, all kind of stuck out to me. But what really stuck out to me about Kelpius was that all of the books I read, which included works by scholars like Catherine Albanese, Lyric Schmidt, really kind of the leading historians of American religion and and sort of have produced some of the most kind of wide-ranging syntheses of American religion writ large. In particular, I'm thinking of um, Lyric Schmidt's Restless Souls and Catherine Albanese's A Republic of Mind and Spirit. None of these books that I read when they referred to Kelpius seemed to agree with each other, and none of what any of them said seemed to make much sense. Kelpius was identified as a Rosicrucian, 
uh, hermit who lived outside of Philadelphia. He was also identified as things like a theosophist, a witch, um, in addition to things like a pietist and a theologian and all these much, much different categories than the other ones. So this is what really prompted my interest was the fact that here's a person who is clearly influential, clearly very unusual, very interesting, and nothing that all of these brilliant leading scholars in their fields say about him seems to make any sense. So that's what led me to Kelpius. I sort of love the idea of early Pennsylvania religious history as this dark, somewhat cobwebby, shadowy corner in the (laughs) attic of American religious history that you know, no one really, it's, it's so hard to wrap your, your head around it. It's such a complex topic that a lot of, for a lot of scholars, it's just something that you can't really dive into too much because it's so confusing. And that op- certainly opens up the door for interesting research opportunities. Right. Absolutely. I remember, not, not to digress, but I remember, um, you know, I grew up going to the effort of cloisters as like a field trip site, or just when someone would come to visit, what's the one interesting thing for 100 miles in any direction. Well, we can look at that place where people slept on wooden blocks. And I never really had a, a super strong interest in Ephrata or Conrad Beisel as a kid. But when I started my graduate work, I began reading some of Beisel's writings. And this is what I love about your work too, Alex, how you um, really kind of make your readers kind of acknowledge and confront the the sophistication of some of these early Pennsylvania religious figures, reading works by Beisel like Dissertation on Man's Fall and these other kind of works, which are not at all the sort of devotional writings that um, are kind of common throughout uh, American religious history, but much more um, kind of esoteric, dense and erudite kind of, you know, Socratic dialogue style writings, but in this hermetic and and kind of Gnostic style, not not to digress on Conrad Beisel, but yeah, uh, an attic with cobwebs is certainly what what I found coming to the study of Pennsylvania, early Pennsylvania religious history. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's um, a fascinating perspective uh, about Beisel and Ephrata and this entire topic because I think it's so easy to find these characters not interesting right. if you don't know what questions to ask of them mm-hmm. because it can it can feel or seem so you know, possibly irrelevant you know, to to, to major questions of our own time, but when you ask the right questions of the source material and, you know, really consider the, the, the place of these individuals in the grand sweep of American history, all of a sudden it becomes, you know, mission critical to understand them and to think about them much more deeply. So, um, yes, that's certainly something that I share. I mean, I remember in my early days at winter tour, you know, when I was first encountering these Pennsylvania German documents, most chiefly Mennonite and Schwenkfelder materials, I alternated back and forth. Either these are terribly uninteresting to me or the most fascinating things I've ever seen in my entire life. And it's all about that analytical lens that you bring to them. Right. Absolutely. So uh, what led you then to Rice University to pursue your doctoral education? Yeah. So as I mentioned, in my time at Drew, I was really, in addition to studying environmental anthropology and religious studies, I was really developing an interest uh, in particular in, like I said, kind of marginal, radical, and kind of heretical belief systems. One kind of, you know, I call it a a silly example, but Bigfoot. but, But the fact of the matter is, you know, Bigfoot is this hugely popular kind of symbol through which all different kinds of American sort of beliefs and anxieties and and fears are kind of like enacted through this um, this idea of this hairy monster in the woods. 
And so I was really interested in to kind of, I was, you know, I was sort of done with Bigfoot at that point. I was ready to move on to something completely different. Rice University's Department of Religion has a doctoral program called the GEM program. The GEM is an acronym for Gnosticism, Esotericism, and Mysticism. So this is uh, a, a PhD. Um, it's not a, it's not one of their concentrations, but it's sort of like a PhD focus that they have where within the traditions and the major world religions that you can study in the Department of Religion and focus on at Rice, this is a, a focus you can take where Rice sort of consciously has their Department of Religion really focused on, again, Gnosticism, esotericism, mysticism, kind of heretical, radical, and, and marginalized trends within the major world religions. And so I knew that I was sort of interested in that side of religious life and religious practice. I knew I was interested in the history of religions in America. And so what led me to Rice was um, working with my advisor, Dr. Jeffrey Kreipel, in the Department of Religion and in the Gen program. I'm sure listeners are probably gathering that in this season of the podcast, I'm trying to take a lens uh, in, in these interviews um, focused on you know the the, the origins of, of scholars' interests in certain topics, and then the theories and methods and anal analytical tools that we bring to bear on those topics, because obviously those factors you know really play into the results that come out of, of research on the other end. And so I'm, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your dissertation project, specifically grounded in this disciplinary lens that you take to your research. What specific questions were you trying to answer? And just for some context as to why that question is so important to me, you know, I came at my research uh, that resulted in my book and my dissertation from a, a material culture perspective. You know, what are these objects? Why do they exist how do we understand them as material objects? And that was my launching off point into the world um, in which you are totally immersed, you know, the, the world of, of, of religion, mysticism, and so on and so forth. And I'm curious about how being grounded in that discipline, how that shaped the specific questions that you were trying to answer. So for the dissertation, the questions that really animated my research at first the questions concerned are not always immediately clear going into the archive is kind of a um like i said kind of a laboratory process of experimentation and working with what you find um the first questions i really was was thinking about and working with was who was this figure kelpius that was that appears so important but so comprehensively misunderstood by so many throughout the 18th and 19th centuries following his death but also, I, I was interested in other religious figures from the period in early Pennsylvania, figures like um, Anna Maria Jung, who was a, another legendary hermit in, in what is now Berks County, Pennsylvania, uh, a hermit and a healer who went on in legend uh, in, in Pennsylvania Dutch oral tradition as Mountain Mary. And also figures like uh, George de Benville, the founder of universalism in America, and another really influential but largely understudied figure from the religious landscape of the time. So those are the questions I really brought to the dissertation initially. And then I, I happened upon a novel, a novel was recommended to me by an author named Charles Brockton Brown, uh, an early American author who was widely studied in early American studies and literary studies today. And the novel is called Wieland, it's from 1798. And I read this novel, just kind of an unbelievably strange novel. I invite anyone who has any interest in this kind of thing, definitely check out Wieland and check out Charles Brockton Brown. But as I was reading the novel, I realized that one of Charles Brockton Brown's main characters in the novel is based clearly on the legendary memory of Johannes Kelpius in Philadelphia. 
And this is a tremendously influential novel, tremendously influential author. And I wasn't the first to realize this, but it just really widened the scope for me of, of the questions of who Kelpius was, what he really believed, and how influential he was and the ways in which he was influential. And so at that point, the project really crystallized for me and it became a project in trying to understand who Kelpius was, what he what he did, what he believed, and where his influence came from. And um, and so and this led me down all kinds of rabbit holes of really kind of contextualizing Kelpius in 17th century Europe, in uh, 17th century pietism, which was this radical Protestant movement uh, in Europe at the time, focused on a really intense emotional, personal connection with God in contrast to Orthodox Lutheranism, which was at the time pretty hierarchical, academic, and regimented, didn't really have much of the devotional quality that ordinary Christians really valued, and contextualizing him in early Pennsylvania, which is obviously a related but completely different kind of historical context that he traveled to and lived in. So a lot of the work that I ended up doing was um, intellectual history, both religion and philosophy, regular history, understanding exactly the kind of circumstances surrounding Kelpius, understanding Kelpius's actual religious ideas, and then his influence. So many of the works of art and literature and philosophy that were written about Kelpius were with him in mind after his life. So those were really the questions that I brought to the dissertation, and that's how the research work developed, and that's the, the final product I ended up producing. It's really, really fascinating, and I love how your research explores not only the, you know, the historical character of Calpheus, but then this memory that grows up around him you know, and, and lingers to our own time. So tell me a little bit more about, about your research and your findings. Who, who in, in your conceptualization of him, was Calpheus, and how did he fit into the religious and spiritual worlds he occupied? I agree. So I, I actually separate, I, I have two Calpheuses that I focus on. As you, as you, I think you've noticed, I have the historical Kelpius, who was a real man who, you know, was born, lived, and died. And then there's the legendary Kelpius, who appears shortly after that and is still with us and can be seen pretty much all over Philadelphia today. Um, and the way that I kind of sorted them was, it sounds kind of simple, but this is how it happened, was I read all of the literature and put it in chronological order. Um, and just saw how people were kind of feeding off of each other and bouncing off of each other. But to focus on your question, who is Kelpius? Um, so just to set the stage, the 17th century, Kelpius is born in 1667. He's born at, in, during a period of unique tumult in European history. The 17th century was an almost unique period of conflict, famine, and um, just general crisis throughout Europe. Kelpius is born in a little village in Transylvania in what is now Romania. At the time, Romania was positioned between the Ottoman Empire at the height of its power and kind of the rubble of 17th century Europe in the wake of absolutely cataclysmic conflicts like the Thirty Years' War, which really didn't stop for, you know, we call it the Thirty Years' War, but the conflict in Europe did not stop at the end of the Thirty Years' War. So Kelpius is born in this unique period of extreme conflict. It's also, as we now, as, as recent historical work is telling us, Kelpius is born at the peak of what historians call the Little Ice Age, historians and climatologists. The Little Ice Age was a period of uh, global cooling that started, well, we can agree and disagree about where, where when it started. Uh, it's 
late medieval period is when it started. It really reaches its peak at the end of the 17th century when throughout the the Northern Hemisphere, average temperatures dropped by two degrees Celsius. This sounds like a very small number. As many of us who are familiar with sort of climate science today know, two degrees is an enormous an enormous drop. Right now, our, our goal for, for climate change is to is to keep global heating at only two degrees. We know that four degrees would probably mean something like extinction. We want to keep it to two. Kelpius was living through a period of global cooling, which dropped it to two. So historians like Jeffrey Parker and others have really clearly shown that this period of climate change leads to um, food crises, which just triggers this basically century of conflict in Europe throughout the 17th century. This is where Kelpius was born. And so Kelpius, uh, he's, he's born in this village uh, called Dendor in, uh, in Transylvania. His father is the pastor at the local Lutheran church. Kelpius would have um, grown up in a very, very kind of provincial setting. He was not uh, from a noble family. But his family was certain, must have been well regarded because we know that his father died when he was quite young. And local nobles from the neighboring city, Shashburg, they paid for his education. So Kelpius goes on to university. And so one, one uh, discovery I made was I know that the first place he went to university was in Leipzig. And I believe, it's, I'm not certain, I'm just using matriculation records. I believe that he actually embarked on a, on a course of study in law in Leipzig, which is interesting, because within just a few months, Kelpius leaves Leipzig. Kelpius, he only really left written records of his life for a very brief period, so we can only speculate on this period of Kelpius's life. I think that Kelpius actually goes to Leipzig, and he becomes involved with pietists in Leipzig. The pietists were at the time, in the late 17th century, were kind of a group within Lutheranism who really prioritized uh, and an intense, personal, intimate, emotional relationship with God. They gathered for religious worship in uh, in private homes, and they gathered in groups that were called conventicles for personal religious discussion and Bible study. Uh, and at the time, pietism was a pretty radical movement. Being part of a pietist conventicle might mean uh, that you went to jail. The Lutheran authorities were not sympathetic to pietism at this period. A century later, it would become kind of a dominant theological uh, perspective within Lutheranism and Protestantism generally during Kelpius's lifetime, especially as a very young man, it was quite radical. So for reasons that, again, we can only speculate, but I feel fairly confident, Kelpius becomes involved with pietists in Leipzig, in particular, perhaps the, the conventicle organized by um, Franca and Leipzig at that time, and he changes his mind. He, he, he appears just a few months later, in the matriculation registers of the University of Tübingen, and he's embarking on a study of theology. I think that Kelpius basically made a decision to become a theologian. At the time, there were many radical pietists operating in and around Tübingen and southwestern Germany generally. And then, two years later, something else happens. Uh, Kelpius disappears from Tübingen. And a a clue to what happened uh, appears in his 1689 dissertation, which he published in Altdorf, for which he received his what, the equivalent of a PhD. And he makes this really cryptic comment in his dissertation. He's writing to his advisor, and he says to his advisor, you were the only one who saw how I was shut out with immense cruelty from Tübingen 
by the most Christian of Christians. And I spent a lot, after I translated this line, I spent a lot of time wondering what on earth happened. Was he, did he become so involved with radical pietists that he went to jail or was expelled? What, what could have happened to him? It took me a long time to realize that the most Christian of Christians is actually the style of the French sovereign. And Louis XIV invaded southwestern Germany in 1688 in a kind of scorched earth attempt to uh, deprive the German army of food. So he burns, it's really a a really early example of what historians today call total war. He burns farms and homes and and kills non-soldiers, non-combatants. So Kelpius was fleeing this uh, invading French army. He arrives in Altdorf in 1689. He completes two essays, one a, a short essay on the on the Church Fathers, written with his advisor, and then another longer work about Aristotle called Pagan Ethics, where he asks if Aristotle is, particularly the Aristotelian Ethics, are a suitable course of study for young Christian men, uh, which he interestingly answers no. Pagan philosophy is just too, um, the, the potential for error is too great for young men to embark on serious courses of study in Aristotelian ethics, which I, I found so interesting because it shows for all of his budding radicalism, Kelpius has this really conservative streak. His, unlike a lot of his contemporaries, Kelpius never wavers from uh, a strict biblical theology, never once, for all of the, the radicalism that he becomes involved in. So Pagan Ethics is published in 1690, uh, and then Kelpius's paper trail evaporates. There's a clue, there's one primary source clue that he worked as a tutor around Altdorf around 1690. But really, the next time we encounter a primary source from Johannes Kelpius, he is making arrangements to flee the continent with a group of around 40 other radical pietists, which suggests, I mean, we can we can only speculate what happened, but certainly Kelpius's break with the Lutheran Church at that point was, was permanent. Um, Kelpius was affiliated with another radical Protestant theologian named Johann Jakob Zimmermann, and uh, Zimmermann actually accused the the Lutheran Church of being the Antichrist on earth in print repeatedly. And he was thrown in jail. He was expelled from uh, from his teaching post in Nuremberg. In 1694, the the local Lutheran Church would actually publish an edict, um, really seriously restricting uh, their tolerance for these kind of radical Pietist activities. So. I think that Kelpius and his affiliation with Zimmerman and many of these other radicals who I write about in my dissertation, I, I do kind of consider them to some extent um, religious refugees of a kind. They were so openly and kind of radically opposed to the Lutheran Church in a context when the church and the state were not separate. They wielded power synchronously. And so I do kind of consider them to be religious refugees in that sense. They have this kind of ill-planned trip there to Pennsylvania specifically to kind of live out um, William Penn's ideal as a kind of a a refuge for heterodox religious groups, religious radicals. Immediately their trip is a disaster. Their leader, Zimmerman, dies in the port in Rotterdam. He doesn't even make it off the continent. Uh, We don't know how he died, but it must have been something, you know, an unexpected medical, medical situation. They managed to get to London. They charter a ship to London, where the next place Kelpius appears in the primary record is in London in the minutes, called the Minutes for the Meeting of Sufferings. These are the local uh, meeting minutes for the, local, for the London chapter of Quakers, in which they record 
meeting with the they call them these poor people called pietists obviously they they came they come to the quaker meetings they're self-identifying as pietists and they actually the quakers actually remark how rough these guys look they said outwardly looking very poor they were probably i mean 17th century london was kind of this nightmare uh of housing of kind of urban density william penn actually when he's laying out the city of Philadelphia, he's trying to zone all the blocks into farms specifically because he doesn't want it to be anything like London. They probably lived in squalor as transient housing and they were, they were subject to kind of like unheard of Quaker generosity. The Quakers forked over nearly, I don't know the exact number, what, what ultimately comes out to nearly a hundred pounds over the course of six months to support these people, a huge amount of money for people they did not really know. I think, and I'm not certain of this, but I see a connection between their ability to charter a ship in Rotterdam, this generosity that they're receiving from the Quakers in London, and eventually when they get to Philadelphia, the group gets this huge tract of land from William Penn's surveyor general. William Penn really reached out to German radical religious groups many times to try to find people to come to Pennsylvania, which is eventually what happens, but it takes decades for it to really work. I think that the Kelpius group was known to William Penn, and I think he was really hoping that this batch of radical Germans would would safely make it to PA and start writing letters home and having more people come from Germany, which is what happened. So they they make it they they board a ship in London to Philadelphia, and this is actually where Kelpius keeps a diary of this trip. Um, so this is the one period in Kelpius's life that we actually know a lot about what he thought and what he did. The diary is in the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. It's mostly in Latin, um, although he does make a, a lot of notes in English. Throughout the diary, we can see uh, Kelpius is very interested in um, the movements of the stars and the planets. He has kind of detailed astrological symbols throughout the diary. One kind of really memorable episode for me, and I think it's memorable for Kelpius too, because he spends more time describing it than any other event in his life, is while they're on the ship in the English Channel, they were awaiting uh, an escort because at the time England was at war, it was in this naval conflict. So all ships going to and from across the Atlantic Ocean required military escorts. And so uh, they're sitting in the English Channel and they're waiting for their escort. And suddenly this unexpected gust of wind starts blowing them towards a sandbank. Um, immediately, the sailors running the ship kind of panic. They're not able to control the ship. And one of the sailors says to all the passengers, commend yourselves to the Lord. We're about to go down. And uh, Kelpius has this moment where he's looking at the captain and he says he had a divine impulse to go speak to the captain. And he he demurs. He, he, he says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay below deck when it, where it's safe. And then he says he feels it again. And he calls it a divine impulse. And I wonder precisely what he meant by that. But he feels it again, and he says, I'm, I'm too scared. I'm, I'm too afraid to die. I can't go up there. And then it happens again, and Kelpius gathers his wits about him, basically, and he goes up on deck, and he says that he clasps the captain's hand, uh, and he says, uh, have faith in God, who is all-powerful. And he says the captain, who was not ignorant of divine matters, in turn clasped Kelpius's hands and said, I have faith in God through him everything is possible. And at that point, as soon as this happens, um, this miraculous gust of wind appears and basically steers the ship to safety, comes out of nowhere, and, and the ship is is safe. And uh, Kelpius, adrenaline probably pumping, goes down below deck and he sees that all of his 
Pietist companions had been fervently praying. And also he says he spoke to one of his colleagues who already knew what happened. He knew exactly what happened through some kind of mystical knowledge. He didn't have to tell them what happened. And and then Kelpius says, so w- what I thought that I had done by myself, it turns out we were all doing it together. So this is a really, like I said, this is a moment that Kelpius, he spends more time describing this than any other moment in his life. It's clearly a moment of what he must have recognized as just kind of profound divine sanction of this particular trip. And indeed, I mean, reading the story today, it is it is kind of amazing. Uh, you know, this miraculous gust of wind, you know, and a, and a prayer so fervent and so powerful that it seems to steer a ship. It's just a remarkable moment. And so fast forward, I, I, I tend to I tend to digress a lot when I'm talking about Kelpius. They they make it to Philadelphia. Um, they decide not to settle in the city. They settle on the ridge of the Wissahickon River, again, on this enormous tract of land that was donated to them by Thomas Fairmount, uh, William Penn's surveyor general. And they build a cottage on a cliff overlooking the Wissahickon River. And they really kind of devote themselves to this life of what we might call monastic or ascetic religious labor. Uh, Kelpius and, and one of his close colleagues we know dressed in a coarse garment like the biblical prophets. They tried to emulate the biblical prophets as closely as they could. Um, I was able to, one, one question about Kelpius that has been raised repeatedly is, how did he make his money? Um, how, did they, how did they actually subsist? And I've been able to uh, locate sources from the, the ministers of uh, the Lutheran community, the Swedish Lutheran community in Philadelphia. And in one letter, one of these ministers says to another, having Bibles bound in Pennsylvania is more expensive than uh, buying actual Bibles in Sweden. And uh, and he complains that this pious holy man who he has enlisted as a bookbinder and is paying is taking too long to bind his Bibles for what he's paying him. So that's kind of a funny passage where we learn that um, you could actually make a pretty good living uh, with pretty simple skills in early Pennsylvania. And Kelpius was clearly unhurried and uh, well paid, at least according to this kind of irritated Swedish minister. And so Kelpius lives on the ridge of the Wissahickon with a small group of colleagues in what could only have been a modest cottage. And throughout his letters, he wrote, so we have records. He has a small letter book, again, in the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, in which he gives sort of not that many details about his life, but he tells us a lot about his religious ideas. Um, and just to keep it focused on his biography for now, he also makes a lot of references to his own kind of physical unwellness. I don't think Kelpius was ever exactly physically strapping. And sometime in the early 17, probably 1703, 1704, he, he develops a wasting condition, which was probably tuberculosis. And he never recovers. And so the last date he records in his journal is 1707. His library is actually bought. Um, oh, gosh, his name escapes me. Um, James Logan, the future governor of Pennsylvania, buys his library, this substantial uh, library. His copy of Newton's first edition of Principia Mathematica is currently in the library company where James Logan records that he bought it from Johannes Kelpius after he died in 1707. And so that is Kelpius' life. Um, And that's how he fits into this kind of tumultuous 17th century world. I have to say, so we have divine impulses, mystical knowledge, um, possible witch living in the woods of the Wissahickon. <laughs> this story really just has it all. I mean, it's pretty pretty phenomenal to think about. Yeah, 
Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. It is it is an amazing story and an amazing life. I have um, one of my Claire Fanger, who was on my PhD committee and who actually taught me Latin and is a really brilliant scholar of medieval uh, Christianity and medieval religion. She really thinks that I should I should focus on uh, a historical novel about Calpius and Company rather than an academic book, just because the story is so dramatic. Well, I see. Perhaps the the historical fiction is the. Um, so the, the second volume in your in your series after you after you publish your monograph, and I mean that raises a really interesting point, which is something I jotted down as you were talking. I mean, there's for for being someone who looms so large in our history, he's a very very elusive figure. Yeah, you know, there, there's actually from what you're saying not that much documentation, really. You're right. He is he is fairly elusive. And, you know, the way I think about it, Alex, is Kelpius purposefully kind of like decided to disappear. Mm-hmm. He gets this PhD. He has this promising academic career. His his education is sponsored by these wealthy noblemen in Transylvania. He could have done anything he wanted. And instead, he, he links up with these really serious radicals, people who probably, you know, affiliations that probably would, could have gotten him killed or imprisoned. And he disappears into the woods in Pennsylvania and is only occasionally heard from again. So the, you know, I wrote in the dissertation that hermits are kind of hard to find by design, whether you're looking for them in the mountains or the primary sources. And that's really the case with Kelpius. His, his elusiveness was by his own design. Um, but I also do think that his elusiveness is overstated in the secondary literature. The basic facts of Kelpius's life his biographical details, as I just related them, are fairly straightforward, and he does fit into this this picture of 17th century radicalism that we're we're just beginning to understand. Right, and I sort of jokingly commented earlier, he you know, possible witch, which clearly he right. was not a witch. But I, <laughs> yeah. I just, where do you think that comes from? I mean, is it, and, and this is where my, I mean, you, you have the knowledge here in, in the realm of sort of the occult and mysticism far more than I do. I mean, is he associated with, so I, I think of radical pietism you know, still, as you say, I mean, he's rooted in the scriptures. Yeah. I mean, was, was he, was he or were members of his community verging into things that would be considered the occult at the time? The answer is yes. Um, Kelpius was not, he probably would have been amused or horrified to be identified as a witch, you know, three centuries later. The way I put it is that um, in the 18th century, the Protestant traditions respond to the Enlightenment by making themselves small. Okay, so at the time, um, and, and especially in the scholastic tradition, theology, physics, astronomy, medicine, all of the music, all of these different kind of advanced fields of study were understood to be really closely related to one another. This is why a subject like alchemy can kind of be difficult for people like us to understand when we read about it, is because we understand medicine and chemistry and kind of personal spiritual development as being three pretty separate things. In the early modern period, at least in the 17th century, they weren't that separate. And so the historian of alchemy, Lawrence Princip, has written that somewhere around 1730 and, or 1740, there's this kind of um, epistemological kind of severing where all of a sudden the major religious traditions kind of seed all of this ground of kind of sort of Paracelsian alchemy, astrology, things like this. And 
they just sort of, I mean, the way I would put it is they kind of go on the defense that the Enlightenment is really picking up steam. Uh, Descartes' critique, Newtonian physics had been embraced by kind of the European Western intelligentsia. And so, but the fact of the matter is before that, when Kelpius is alive, that was not yet fully the case. Um, there were, of course, major exceptions, and occultism is called occultism because it was never completely accepted. It was always a little hidden, a little shadowy. But Kelpius, as I mentioned, very interested in astrology, very interested in alchemy. But the thing about him is he that wasn't that unusual for his time. Lots of people were interested in astrology. Lots of people were interested in alchemy. And these were considered sort of decent, uh, pious, fairly respectable things to be involved in. About 20 years after Kelpius dies, that all changes. So that's sort of how he, how he relates to kind of occultism. That's really, really interesting and just useful to bear in mind that you know, we're, we're viewing Kelpius's lifestyle and intellectual biography through so many layers of you know, the, the development of Western thought. Right. So what can seem very bizarre or fringe to us today um, it, you know, it, we, we really have to try to place ourselves in that milieu of his own time to grasp what he was actually up to, that it, it was perhaps radical, but not surprising necessarily for, for, for someone in his pietistic circle. Right, absolutely. So bearing that in mind, you, we've already talked a little bit about Conrad Beisel and other figures in, in this early Pennsylvania religious world. How unique was Kelpius compared to some of these other famous yet elusive figures, some some of whom, as I say, we've already talked about, some of whom we haven't? And in his time, how impactful was he in his community? What kind of reputation did he establish in the region? And then how how does that, you know, at post after his lifetime, how does that start to contribute to the formation of a collective memory around him? Right. So, um, as I mentioned, a lot of Kelpius's fringe beliefs at, in his time and in his milieu, as you noted, were not that fringe. There is one thing about Kelpius and his immediate circle of followers that did make them stand out, even in this kind of, you know, heterodox dissenters paradise in early Philadelphia, which was that they were they were very interested in kind of serious expressions of ascetic religious belief. So for Kelpius and his, his immediate group of people, he travels with this group of 40. I happen to think that Kelpius, just based on the, where they were and kind of the, the size of the dwelling they inhabited, I think the group of people that live with Kelpius was probably pretty small. I think it was probably even single digits much of the time. This is in contrast to a lot of the legends which speculate that he and his colleagues built this enormous facility with an, an observatory on the ridge of the Wissahick, and Kelpius refers to it as a cottage. It was, I think, it was probably a pretty small little situation. But this group of people that he lived with, they practiced strict celibacy, and they they based this on the letters of Paul. Paul says that um, marriage is fine, but celibacy is probably better. They kelp. We know that Kelpius and at least one of his companions wore a coarse garment, like a hair shirt, basically this long robe, which was deliberately meant to be irritating to the skin. And there's one portrait of Kelpius that exists. Uh, it's in the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. It was made by a friend of his uh, named Dr. Christopher Witt. And in the portrait, Kelpius is wearing his his robe. His legs are kind of stretched out in front of him. He They look kind of stiff. And 
he's his he's kind of holding his fingertips are sort of touching his forehead while his elbow rests on either the the crook of his leg or the arm of the chair and it's you know it's a kind of the nice way to put it is that the portrait has this autodidactic illustrative technique it's not a masterpiece but when i look at the portrait i see a man who doesn't look well you know i see a man who kind of who who seems kind of physically infirm but he also stands out in this wearing of this garment and this robe and um we know that he really tried to model his life on the biblical prophets and new testament figures like john the baptist uh jesus frankly and so this was what actually made him unique was that at the time this expression of ascetic behavior in protestant circles was really unpopular because it seemed so catholic it smacked of sort of the monastic orders which were um kind of the intellectual homes of christendom in the middle ages and the protestants really had a strong distaste for that and kelpius he responds to accusations of uh what appeared would be accusations of like catholic behavior in his letters but he really was modeling like those monastic orders those orders were founded by christians who read the bible and wanted to act out what they saw in the new testament and uh, and what christians call the old testament and kelpius did the exact same thing just on a much smaller scale in a protestant context um so that's what really makes him unique and we also know that conrad beisel at least in the 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 chronicle the ephrata chronicles uh written long after he had died conrad beisel actually comes from germany specifically because he has heard of kelpius and he wants to kind of apprentice himself to kelpius but he arrives in 1720 so kelpius has been dead unfortunately for 13 years but one of kelpius's followers is still there in the cottage a a swiss person named conrad mathai who beisel stays with and says that he learned from so i think it's too much to say that um the ephrata commune is kind of Kelpius's legacy, but I don't think it's too much of a stretch. I think that's I think Kelpius is part of this huge intellectual world that Beisel managed to conjure by the Cocalico River as Kelpius was by the Wissahickon. Uh, but Kelpius is a big part of it. And so Kelpius is influential enough that he becomes less unique as history goes on, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's really interesting. And um fascinating to think that as you so beautifully elucidated there, that it's it's his actions in the world perhaps that, that set him apart more than his actual you know, written works or his his theology um which again contributes to this elusive foggy view of him because obviously it's harder to hold on to what it would have been like to experience that presence uh, that than it is to to read to read his written words on the page mm-hmm. which leads me to my next question and that, uh, bearing in mind what you, what you just said that we really need to think about the figure that he cut locally and regionally sort of in his self-presentation and the, and the actions that he took. Can you tell me more about his published writings? And I mean, specifically, I guess, what did you glean from them for purposes of your project? Right. So Kelpius only publishes three things in his lifetime, uh, his dissertation, the essay on the church fathers and the essay on Aristotle that I mentioned. This is sort of part of his kind of withdrawing from the world and kind of disappearing on purpose he continues to write a lot but he doesn't publish anything in philadelphia this is i call it community writing because there's there's really so he he has a short diary which is in latin uh which is just about his journey to pennsylvania which i sort of you know it must have been such a consequential move you know to be a i can understand why that's the period in his life that he feels like he needs to document 
because it is such a consequential thing he does making this decision to to go to Pennsylvania and leave Europe behind. He has uh, a letter book which contains um I think there are eight or nine letters in the letter book. I can't remember the exact number. And these are in in German and Latin and English. Kelpius starts writing and presumably speaking in English by 1704. And his English is really fun because he's he's like brilliant. He knows Greek and Hebrew and Latin and German and probably more languages. And so he's quite good with languages, but he's just learning English. So it's it's fun to watch this brilliant guy kind of stumble through his English. And the letters, so uh, Oswald Seedensticker, this kind of great early Pennsylvania German historian who I know that uh, you've worked on as well, he has this great line about Kelpius's letters, which he says, how I wish that Kelpius would have given us more details about his life and his context instead of the extensive theological whims that he spins, which is Seedensticker's way of saying Kelpius had this uh, kind of uniquely early modern rambling devotional theological quality in all of his writings that made him to i presume his readers then but also his readers today kind of excessively pious but you know he was also a guy who you know wore a hair shirt and uh lived on a cliff so he probably was excessively pious and in addition to that kelpius and this is part of why i call it community writing kelpius wrote songs poems and hymns which are collected uh in a manuscript titled the lamenting voice of the hidden love and these are all long religious hymns. He, like many other kind of composers of his day, he would take melodies and take kind of stanza structure from other popular hymns of the time. But his own writings are really unique and really special. And um, what makes them kind of unique and special, he just has so such a kind of like vivid religious imagination. Uh, so one, I, one, I have a chapter where I really focus on one letter that Kelpius wrote and one hymn that relates to it. The the letter is called On the Threefold Wilderness State, where he really outlines his mystical system and how he understands Christian life and Christian living in response to the Bible and biblical history. And he also has a uh, a poem called, uh, and I hope I can get it right, because he has like four central themes that he just kind of endlessly re- redoes in his poems. Wilderness, sex, death, sex being kind of this erotic yearning for mystical reunification with the Godhead. I should say eroticism in his poetry and secrets. And, uh, and this poem is called of the wilderness or the secret of the hidden cross love. And so, you know, all four, and I, I didn't get that title exactly right. I can never remember them all because they're all so similar, but that just goes to show he has these four kind of themes that just, he spins and spins. So another researcher named Don Kirby Richards recently located in an archive two letters in Latin from Kelpius's time in London. These are letters to university colleagues, uh, and one of them he asked for some money. They're interesting just because they give us a window into this kind of desperate period when he's trying to travel from from London. But that's the Kelp that is the Pennsylvania Kelpius corpus, about seven or eight letters, um, a diary about his travels, and these amazing poems with this really intense mystical erotic imagery that's amazing and these titles that even i understand their approximations with these titles that you quoted are really really fantastic and again just reiterate this point of how different the rhetorical world the the spiritual world was in which calpius and his circle found themselves so um as, as you note not a voluminous amount of primary source material but 
a very um, intriguing and titillating uh, set of materials. Absolutely. And I, I should mention, I, the reason I call it community writing is because um, Kelpius is he's writing to people who visit him and to people who write to him with questions. Uh, those are who his letters are, are to and from. And in his poems, they're written in this kind of dialogic style where they clearly have multiple voices. So there's different char- characters in the poems. And clearly, I think that they are meant to be sung. These are poems that he that were hymns that he that would be recited in a group. And so I think that's really important to note is that th- this wasn't just kind of like the private kind of religious scribblings of a recluse. This is something that he was literally singing with his friends in a, in a big group, singing about their kind of in, in really, I have to call it sexual language about their religious impulse to reunite with God. You know, as you're sharing all of this, I'm thinking as well about Francis Daniel Pastorius, yeah. you know, the, the pietist and Quaker, who's sort of another facet of this whole melange of, of fascinating um, <laughs> religious scholar types in, in Pennsylvania. And th- this idea of, you know, community writing and manuscript publication, that here's a person in Pastorius who produced, you know, a lot of rich literary, intellectual, theological content to you know, keep the scholars busy for centuries, but it's not in a format that's very familiar to us today. You know, it is manuscript material. It's right. gatherings of quotations, you know, commonplace style gatherings of, of material from elsewhere that he spins into something new. And I think that that also contributes to the elusive nature of these early settlers in the colony, in, in Pennsylvania, in the wider region, that the very nature of scholarly work has evolved so much since their time that it seems almost illegible, um, except that it's also deeply fascinating. Absolutely. I know I know exactly what you mean. I think mean, that's certainly the case. So take us a little bit more deep into your work um, when you were when you were doing this research and, and working on your analysis, obviously we have a sense now of the kinds of primary sources that you had at your disposal. I mean, as you were preparing the dissertation, doing all this research, it must've been both incredibly exciting and somewhat intimidating to be working with this complex material. How did you go about your work? What archives and libraries were most central to this project um, and given the nature of the primary sources, what kinds of analytical approaches did you develop as you were going about your, your research and writing? Right. Yeah, it, it was intimidating, Alex. And the short answer is I had a lot of help. Um, so I defended my dissertation proposal in January of 2020. And I actually had plans to travel to Europe to investigate some manuscript sources in Europe in the summer of 2020. So you can guess what happened. But uh, I was really lucky in that many European archivists, when I wrote to them and explained who I was and what I was doing, were so helpful. And they were so eager to send me material that I would have loved to go to Europe just to go to Europe. But they, they they made it work for me. So like I said, matriculation registers from Leipzig and birth certificates from, not birth certificates, but I guess baptism records from Romania and um, other kind of university documents. I, re- I was able to receive all via email from these wonderful archivists who the acknowledgement section of my dissertation is just this list of these amazing librarians and archivists who, who made it all possible. But 
also from Europe, Kelpius's academic writings, the three published academic pieces that I mentioned, those are all available in uh, digital format. So by, I think it was 2018, I started to really seriously uh, work in Latin and I joined the Medieval Latin Reading Group in the Department of Religion at Rice. And I was really lucky to work with some amazing Latinists in that group who helped me with my translation of Kelpius's Latin writing. 17th century Latin, Latinists call it Neo-Latin because the language kind of, somewhat like academic English today, academic authors in the 17th century used a lot of jargon and they really tried to like impress their readers with their diction and the obscurity of the words they used, which for a person like me is just like absolutely nightmarish, but we got through it, translated Kelpius's dissertation. That was kind of the most kind of sustained textual single relationship between me and a particular text was just figuring out precisely what Kelpie has said in his dissertation. This was so important. And it, so other archive, ar- archives and libraries I visited, again, I was really lucky that a lot of the material, the Kelpius material was available digitally, but I was very lucky to get, so like I said, I, I lived and worked in Houston until last summer, the summer of 2021. I was very lucky to relocate to Philadelphia in the summer of 2021 for this purpose, just for being able to spend lots and lots of time in archives. The first place I went was the Horner Library, the Horner Memorial Library, the German Society of Pennsylvania, where uh, in addition to a few things on Kelpius, I was able to really interact with a wider variety of Pennsylvania German print and manuscript sources particularly works by Pastorius that are unavailable anywhere else. But also um, that was ac- the Horner Library was actually the first place where I sat and translated much of Johann Arndt's True Christianity book for the Book of Nature, which I think is kind of the single most important intellectual work for understanding 17th century radical Protestantism generally, particularly later radical pietism, particularly this particularly radical sect of hermetic pietism that Kelpius is involved in. It's all right there in Johann Arndt's book four of true Christianity. After that, I spent a lot of time at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, working with Kelpius's diary, his letter book, which are kind of bound together in one beautiful little, you know, three by five, 17th century little book. And it's a really wonderful little artifact too, because, um, so a few things, the back page is Kelpius's address book. So he has little notes for people to contact in London and also little notes to himself. And in the very front, it's really kind of poignant detail that really illustrates for me personally, Kelpius's physical decline is he has a title page where he writes, you know, you know, Johannes Kelpius from Transylvania, letters written and sent from the wilderness, which was where he identified his location. And then he writes 1694-1703-4-5-6-7. And the way I interpret those dates is that I don't think, I think when he wrote 1703 in that letter book, I think he didn't expect to live that much longer. That's really, really touching. Yeah, and I think every year that he writes dash four dash five is just like this borrowed time and it does and then for me like that particular textual detail in that letter book really you know sometimes and i'm kind of doing it a little bit in this conversation sometimes you know i might poke fun a little bit at kelpius's excessive piety and the tremendous kind of um 
emotional quality of his writing and his relationship with his own mortality and the mortality of the world and the decline of creation. Um, but you know, he was a young, he was in his thirties when this was happening. He was not that much older than me and he felt his body dying. And, you know, and that, you know, so I, I guess I just want to qualify some of my uh, comments about that. So that, that's one detail. And yeah, those are the primary archives I worked with and visited. And so to, just to, to remind myself, so he had survived tuberculosis by the time he was doing the dashes in his diary, but never completely recovered. I, so here's the thing, like I'm, I'm not a doctor. So in all of the secondary literature, Kelpius is kind of unambiguously declared to have died of tuberculosis in 1708. So that dates wrong. But, um, and this is the other thing about the secondary literature about Kelpius, which we can get into later. Much of it is, it has been rewritten by kind of enthusiastic antiquarians. So that's why if you go to the Kelpius Wikipedia page, it's just like nonsense. But so I don't know, to answer your question, Alex, I don't know what happened to Kelpius. And I think I kind of run a risk by being too confident that it's one thing or another thing. Right. But my sense is that by, like I said, 1703, around that period, he begins to decline. He starts talking about his health in his letters. And those dashes to me really indicate that um, those last few years of his life really felt to him like borrowed time. Right. Which, I mean, again, not to be critical of his lifestyle, because it has earned him lasting fame in many ways. If he he were struggling with his physical health, I'd imagine the asceticism of his lifestyle wasn't exactly helping matters either. Right. Absolutely. I mean, he, he would have had many numerous occasions to catch cold living on a cliff in Pennsylvania at the peak of the Little Ice Age. Um, right. Yeah. Huh, amazing. So I want to talk a little bit more about interpretation and specifically, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, how your research intersects with environmental humanities. And this is clearly something as you were describing your own intellectual biography that you know was an early interest of yours. Um, but I- explain to me how you bring that environmental humanities perspective to this topic and maybe you know, just define what environmental humanities are and how you see that field um, you know, playing a role in conversations around climate issues in our own time. Right. Yeah. Wonderful question. Thank you. So environmental humanities is a big umbrella term that describes work within the humanities um, related to kind of the relationship between the way I see it, human beings and non-human beings. So non-human beings, including what we think of as, you know, plants, animals, the immediate kind of physical objects around us, but also how all these things are sort of interrelated and how human beings, as I kind of put it, you know, make meaning with the world uh, kind of together through their perception of and knowledge of the environment around them. And so in my own work, so the first thing I, I try to make clear is that the word environment doesn't really come into common use in English until the 19th century. And and even then, it only refers to one's immediate, it, it, the word environment means something more like circumstance. It refers to like the immediate spatial context of, a, of an object. By the 20th century, post-Rachel Carson, we get this much more capacious notion of the environment, which is what I just said, the relationship between human beings and the non-human world around us, um, and the way that we are part of that world and that we fit into it. 
And so as it intersects with Pennsylvania German studies and Kelpius in particular, like I said, I mean, one thing I'm, I'm again, I, another thing I, I love about your work, Alex, and the whole kind of literature project of material text interpretation, it's different from what I do in religious studies. And I learned so much from it. But again, as I, you know, for me, kind of as a person who, who works on the ways, the, the ways that human beings make religious meaning out of environmental phenomena. When I look at Pennsylvania German material culture, you know, as I said, stars, birds, flowers, animals, and the human in the center of all that, right? The Pennsylvania German material culture really presents this kind of truly kind of cosmic vision of the world and the human place within it. And the other thing I, I, I find really fascinating about it is this kind of rich imagery is thoroughly grounded in Protestant theology of the period. So in Johann Arndt's True Christianity, which is probably the most popular book of Protestant devotional literature ever written, it was widely read in Germany and Pennsylvania throughout the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Johann Arndt advances this pretty radical perspective that God created the world and everything in the world is kind of a legible artifact in God's handwriting, and you can learn how to read it. And he wrote you, God wrote you in that handwriting too. And that understanding of the understanding that comes through perception of the world is literally getting to read like the sequel to the Bible written in God's hands. The actual legibility of creation is fundamental to Pennsylvania German religious culture, and that's reflected in their material culture too. So again, to even tie it into Kelpius, when I read Kelpius's letters, when I read his his dissertation, his poems, uh, he's constantly referring to the natural world. He's not only is he identifying his location as the wilderness, he's he names his own personal theology after the wilderness. He's constantly thinking in terms of his his immediate physical environment and his relationship to it as it compares to the physical environment presented in the Bible and the relationship between the biblical prophets and their environment. And finally, Kelpius in particular, this late 17th century radical branch of pietism, Kelpius's relationship with the environment was so intimate that, for example, in one letter, he's writing to a, uh, to a minister in Rhode Island, and, um, and he says, you know, he, he says, dear brother, and I'm, again, I'm paraphrasing here, if, if you have doubts about any of this, or if you, you know, find yourself in need of some kind of, of, of you know, strength in your resolve, take a look up at the sun in the sky and the stars and uh, all the other phenomena of the sky and just pay close attention to it. And you'll see what I mean. And you will like understand that we are living through this uniquely holy time in creation and this sort of special period of God's uh, waxing presence on earth. So again, I, I qualify all that by saying that when we, when I superimpose this modern notion of the environment over top of that, this is a notion that they didn't really have but I almost think that they didn't really have it because it was just the water, it was the air they breathed, it was the water they swam in. And this is abundantly reflected throughout uh, Pennsylvania German material culture. Wow, that's just such eye-opening commentary, Tim. And I think especially you know, this, this idea that the landscape is a text that can be read, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that, that's so meaningful in then how we go back to the material text. And especially, as you note, in sort of the Pennsylvania German, quote-unquote, decorative arts tradition, um, how we interpret all of these, uh, sort of the visual culture of products of, of, of craft 
and and the Pennsylvania German manuscripts that are such familiar features in, in museum period rooms and, mm. and um, museum and library collections. And you know, as you note, I mean, to tie it back to Arndt's work, uh, which which was this hugely popular religious text in the in the time. I mean, it's um, it is it's it's a, it's a different cosmology that is is both you know a revelation and also very easy to understand. I mean, it's right. you know, not. It's not unheard of. It's, it's not surprising that in this rich natural landscape, um, people would be finding such deep and profound meaning. Right. Tell us more about next steps for your research. Do you have any major unanswered questions that you weren't able to fully resolve or tackle in your dissertation that you're hoping to continue exploring? And um, you know, now maybe that you've been a little removed from, from the writing process, and um, you, you, you've moved, relocated, finished a degree, you, you started a, a new wonderful academic position. Um, all of this is maybe settling, uh, you have a little bit more distance uh, from your project. What, what are the big unanswered questions? What are the next steps that you think you need to explore as far as Kelpius is concerned? As far as Kelpius is concerned, there's still more work to do, Alex. I mean, you know, I, I set out to really understand Kelpius, and in doing so, I, I learned a lot about the late 17th century and the religious world of the late 17th century. But so much of the work I did is illustrating his context, basically just saying, like, how would it be possible for this person to have these ideas here in Philadelphia at this time? And so a lot of what I ended up doing was context. And so in addition to really seriously working with his dissertation, I just have one chapter, which is I just go deep into Kelpius's religious ideas. So there's more work to do there. Uh, there's more. There's more work to do with his hymns and poetry. Um, I'm really eager for people. Hopefully, you know, I can publish this dissertation as a book, and I'm, you know, I'm eager for some other enterprising uh, scholar to to dive into this and um, and to bring their own perspective to it because I really feel like. I do feel like at this point, um, when I started this project, Kelpius was a real anomaly to me, and he doesn't feel like an anomaly to me anymore. There's still so much we don't know about him, but I do feel like, in addition to the basic biographical details, I know who he was and what he thought, and 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 I have you know I developed kind of this hypothesis about his particular, you know, I call it environmental knowledge. But the one of the, and this is just another story from my research, but one little confirmation moment I had was when I was translating his essay on Aristotle. And his first line is, on a night not too long ago, one of the many nights that I spend um, in, contem- in devotional contemplation of the sky, I had occasion to sort of journey in thought in my mind throughout the different stars and planets. And he goes on, and it, for me, it was just a confirmation that, okay, my perspective on this person is 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 pretty accurate. He's his relationship with the sky in particular and his knowledge of the sky is, is so crucial to all of the thinking he does. So I guess th- to say, not to say, I, I think that there's much more work to be done on Kelpius, but I, part of me does feel like, um, oh gosh, it makes me really sad to say that I, that I might say goodbye to Kelpius, but at least goodbye for now. And so for me, the next steps, as I mentioned, are, you know, my original dissertation involved many more individuals um and involved uh and and it was not squarely kelpius and i ended up having to do something squarely on kelpius which was extremely rich and rewarding as i probably made clear but for me step two is there's lots of other people in early pennsylvania 
that I want to work on and that I want to try to understand. So in particular, I, I'm interested in, so right after, so Kel, one of Kelpius's close friends later in life was an English doctor named Christopher Witt, who was an alchemist and probably um, a magician, like probably like a, even more so than Kelpius, like a straight up practicing occultist who was interested in magic. And uh, Christopher Witt is also a, a, a really well-known early botanist. He's well-known throughout Philadelphia. Benjamin Franklin writes his wife a letter mentioning, letting her know that Christopher Witt has died. Um, he was a well-known figure. He was also kind of an early teacher of, he, he had a relationship with John Bartram. Um, he uh, had a relationship with the, Christ, the Sauer brothers and their famous printing press in Philadelphia. Um, and so I'm interested in this kind of religious herbal knowledge that is related to Kelpius, but comes through Christopher Witt, and it proliferates in early Pennsylvania. Christopher Sauer has a relationship with George de Benville, the aforementioned founder of universalism in America, who I'm very interested in. Christopher Sauer actually has a, he, he apparently had a prophetic dream that a very special, important person was going to show up in Philadelphia the next day. And then the following day, George de Benville introduces himself to him. And George de Benville wrote this um, really amazing book called Pennsylvania Medicina, uh, Pennsylvania Medicine, uh, which was about his medical practice and all of his sort of written records of all the different herbs and what they do. And it's entirely, it's really cool because it's this 18th century document, but it's thoroughly imbued with astrology and alchemy and all really the thought world of early modernity, which persists in isolation well into the 18th century in Pennsylvania. And he happened to be next door neighbors. George de Benville uh, happened to be a next door neighbor of Anna Maria Jung, this famous Pennsylvania German hermit and healer who was known in legendary literature of the 19th century as Mountain Mary. So there's this, I don't want to call it a lineage because I don't know that it's a lineage yet, but there's this complex of knowledge, which is really unique and really sophisticated. And I think really beautiful that Kelpius is kind of the starting point, but there's a sequel to be written. And it will take a long time. I was working with Pennsylvania Medicina in the, the Library of the College of Physicians in Philadelphia a few weeks ago, and it's a formidable document. I, I'm excited to work on, to dive into the translation, but there's also a part of me that kind of wants to, you know, sit down for a minute. So yeah, that's, those are next steps. Um, many, many unanswered questions. And I feel really lucky to be living and working at a time when I do feel like there's a new phase of Pennsylvania German studies kind of coming on through your work, through the work I'm sure of many of the other people you're going to interview for this season of the podcast and um, the work of many others. So, so yeah, that, that's where I am. And those are, those are kind of the, the things I'm looking forward to. Well, I can't wait to read your first book and trust, you know, trust that then Kelpius can, is the stepping stone, as you say, into this wider network uh, environment, dare I say, of, of you know knowledge and, and spiritual wisdom that was operating right here in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia um, in the, in these early times. So I have two specific follow up questions that derive from your, some of your commentary. And the first is, can you say a word? And this is a very complex topic, so I apologize for putting you on the spot with it. But sure, can you say a word about the relationship between this group of people? whose names you just sort of uh, laid out for us, and the Enlightenment, mm -hmm. which in and of itself is sort of an amorphous concept. How do you define the Enlightenment? But you know, in some ways, obviously, the, the, these feel like very different movements. Mm -hmm. And yet, 
Perhaps not so much. I mean, obviously, these folks, these you know, German pietistic individuals who were practicing magic and engaging in herbal healing and had this sort of quasi medieval mystical view of the world. You know, they were interacting with people like Benjamin Franklin, and you know, were, were engaging with nat- natural phenomena in a way that feels kind of similar to how you know, quote unquote, enlightened Americans. Uh, were engaging with the environment around them. I mean, how do you conceptualize this distinction between, you know, the Enlightenment as it's frequently discussed and in, in, in described in American history and Western history and what these um, Pennsylvania Germans were up to? Right. That is an excellent question, Alex. And as you said, it's, it's a big one, but I think I can answer it. And um, my answer is, and I'll explain it, my answer is that those, those people I described and what they were doing, that is actually what the Enlightenment was. So let me qualify that. Henry Melchior Muhlenberg, uh, famous um, Lutheran missionary in Pennsylvania, author of these enormous journals of his time uh, in the colony, and really influential religious leader of the period. He was a special fan of Johann Arndt, as I said. Um, Johann Arndt, who preserves this alchemical, mystical, hermetic, occult relationship to the environment in his book of true Christianity. He's such a big fan of Johann Arndt that in his journal, when he goes into someone's home and he's talking about, today I went into the home of so-and-so, and I was pleased to note that they had a copy of Blessed Arndt on the shelf. So the book is so special to him that when he's like a value, when he's like kind of like in a gossipy way, like evaluating the piety of the people that he comes to visit. He's like, these people are probably okay. I mean, they had aren't on the shelf, like it must be all right. But there's another dimension to Muhlenberg, which is there are particular forms of Christian piety and devotion that he is really suspicious of and hostile to, and I would say afraid of. And so an example of that is Muhlenberg went to go preach in Ole, Pennsylvania, a little village in Berks County which is kind of this unrecognized like mecca of all the most radical people in early Pennsylvania, even as Pennsylvania itself was this global mecca of radical religious people. Muhlenberg calls Ole, he says something like, not since like Sodom and Gomorrah has there been such a den of sin as Ole, Pennsylvania, which I just find hilarious um but he goes to Ole and he says utterly delightful i think i need to go to Ole now <laughs> yeah and it, uh, now it's just this beautiful little village in berks county i can only imagine um but yeah so muhlenberg is in Ole and he's preaching and you know he's trying to i don't know get these people in 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 line with his idea of what lutheranism should be but um he's recording a conversation with, with someone where someone says um I am completely saved and I know that I'm saved and I have received sort of direct and full confirmation of my proximity to God and God's love and relationship with me. And Muhlenberg responds, okay, did this come to you through, through careful reasoning, contemplation of the scriptures and your own rational thinking, or did it come to you in a dream or a vision or in some kind of otherwise mystical state. And for Muhlenberg, the first is the only way, the only possible way to do it. And the second is just 100% error, um, 100% delusion, really no good. 
So suffice to say, Muhlenberg and Kelpius would not have gotten along. Indeed, Muhlenberg writes a little bit about Kelpius and decades after Kelpius dies. And, you know, again, paraphrasing pretty aggressively, Muhlenberg is saying, you know, these guys, they're really not my kind of guys. And so, uh, so what I mean by that is, um, the enlightenment is capacious, Alex. And part of what it, part of why the things that we call occultism or mysticism or esotericism become so popular in these time periods is that the enlightenment, the sudden proliferation of access to printed material that occurs in early modernity suddenly allows all kinds of not particularly privileged people to have access to a wealth of ideas. And this includes Newtonian mechanics. It includes Paracelsian alchemy. It includes, you know, alongside Martin Luther, it includes, you know, Agrippa's occult philosophy. All these people are reading these things at the same time. And history shows that it takes a long time to sort these ideas out. And so today for us, looking back, it's easy to feel like the Enlightenment was this moment where all of a sudden everybody just agreed with David Hume and they were all perfect little skeptics. But it was complicated and it was it was seriously it was it was something that we see in the sources being acted out in real time. And in figures like Muhlenberg, we can see how they embody these contradictions of on the one hand, all I need to know about someone is whether they have a copy of Aren't on the Shelf. And this immediate contradiction, and if you have any kind of vision of God, that's a serious problem. So that, that's my, my answer to that question is um, the relationship is deep and complex, but also what seems to us to be this backwards style, or I mean, not to us, but what is sometimes called a backwards or superstitious style by Enlightenment style thinkers, that's actually what the Enlightenment was, this proliferation of access to ideas. And it's just fascinating. And I think important for us all to remember that the idea of the enlightenment is, you know, a conceptual formulation. Um, and certainly in terms of American you know, pop culture and thinking about how we talk about the enlightenment today in terms of its political consequences. I mean, it's a very narrow way of defining um, what the enlightenment actually actually was and to think of it as capacious enough to include people like this who were engaging in close observation of the world around them right i mean that's if you're going to define one sort of epistemological quality that makes the enlightenment special and different supposedly it is that um idea of observation of the natural world um and you know, our folks our pennsylvania german uh, people were, were very much doing that even if it took on a slightly different form from right um, what some of their English neighbors were up to. Absolutely. So the other question I want to ask you, and this is something that comes up again and again as, as you're describing your research method, is the importance of language study mm-hmm. and the excitement and the you know, challenge of developing the language skills actually to access these sources, which I think if one were going to point to one issue that has kept um, Pennsylvania German primary sources writ large from finding more expression in sort of the standard narrative of early American religious history. It's that it's, you know, incredibly challenging to, to access the, the, the content because of um, 
obviously the, you know, the, the German script, the German language, and then in the case of some of these individuals, as you've described, you know, having to having having to join a medieval Latin study group in order right. to study early American history. I mean, it's just this perfect encapsulation of the challenge. And so, can you say more about what that process was like for you, and um, for for some you know emerging scholar out there? I mean, what what your advice is in terms of maybe starting that process sooner rather than later of acquiring the necessary language skills to be able to to dive into this content. Yeah, sooner rather than later. I mean, it, that isn't that the truth? Um, there was there have been so many times over the last few years, Alex, where I desperately wished I would have like started studying German when I had access to it in high school and college, rather than when I needed it. So, on the one hand, I don't want to I don't want to diminish the fact that I had to learn two languages to do this work. I mean, that was the challenge. On the other hand, I do feel like we're lucky to live in a time where language learning is uniquely accessible. So in in part, that was through my university. So I was really lucky to have, um, as part of doing a PhD in religious studies, you're required, this this is at Rice, but it's common throughout doctoral programs, you're required to pass translations exams in French and German, just because so much of the academic literature is in those two languages. And so my German, studying German, I started studying German, I guess, about six years ago now. And, um, and it's still been a long process, but I do feel a little bit lucky in that compared to, you know, I'm in a religion department where most of my colleagues are working in Tibetan and Hebrew and Greek. And, you know, I, I really never felt, uh, I never really had the audacity to complain about having to learn German. So, yeah. And then with Latin also, that was, that was another challenge, but in that particular case, I was very lucky to have, um, a teacher who was kind of willing to take me on and basically agreed with me that the project was important and was willing to help me. Um, so again, Claire Fanger, my Latin teacher at, at Rice. Um, language learning was easily the biggest challenge of this project. Luckily for me, Latin and German both have pretty rigid linguistic structures. And what I mean by that is compared to English, if you learn most of the basic rules of the languages and really just drill them and get them down, you know, again, really familiarize yourself with the religious vocabulary of whatever period you happen to be studying. It's not that bad. That would be my, my second piece of my first piece of advice, as you said, would be figure out what you need to do and just start early. And then my second piece of advice would be, it's not that bad. I'm, I don't, I'm sure that your experience of working in German text was a similar mixture of, of challenge and also kind of like, when you translate something and when, you know, we've all had that moment of translating a long sentence in another language and you think you have it, but there's this word and you're not sure about its relationship to that word. And then, you know, you go to the dictionary and the dictionary has two definitions that for the one word that are completely different. And, and then suddenly you just, and it clicks and you, and you see the whole sentence and you, and you understand it perfectly. I mean, that is such a rewarding moment that I guess it kind of does make it worth it. So I guess those those would be my two reflections on that. It's a it's a, a huge challenge start early, and also it's it's not that bad, and it's really worth it because as as you've shown in your work, and I'm sure you've experienced, it opens up this world. You know, learning a language is learning in cultural anthropology. There's mo- many anthropologists theorize that um, language really contains the world, and that learning two languages is kind of having a whole other world open to you, literally. And that's kind of been my experience. So, yeah, I would really encourage anyone who is 
maybe not sure if they want to embark on a regimen of language learning to just go for it. Yeah, I feel a real affinity with what you are saying. And, you know, from you know, my experience was with German in particular, once you start to build up a certain vocabulary that was common for the, for the time period in, in which you are working and for the purpose or the, the kind of literature right. with which you are engaging. I mean, it's not like learning necessarily. Obviously, you, you learn the grammar of the entire language. You learn the rules of the entire language. But you're, at least in my case, working in a rather um, defined topic, Certainly. which means you develop a very perhaps bizarre vocabulary, right? I mean, for, for <laughs> yeah. me, you know, my ability now to open a German hymnal Pennsylvania German hymnal of the late 18th, early 19th centuries and sort of get the gist of, of, of the hymn texts. It comes pretty easily now just because, you know, it's, you can kind of guess what the topic is going to be, right? I mean, right, there's a, a, right. That variety of topics, a, a pretty standard vocabulary. And so that's, that's very helpful for sure. And I, I hope that another point here that the listeners can take away is that, you know, as intimidating as this all is to dive into these research topics. I mean, for a lot of us, you ask the questions, you figure out what you're going to, what you want to write about, what you want to do, what you want to accomplish. And then you go about assembling the tools to make it happen. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, I certainly was not, I, I did not, when I began my graduate work, I did not have the German that I would need to get me through to the end of the project. Right. But through doing the project and through taking classes and working with experts, you know, I was able to sort of claw up to that level where I could do the work that I needed to do. And yeah. I would never present myself to the world now as you know, an expert in ger the German language of that period, but right. I am sufficiently capable of doing what I need to do to make the points that I want to make. Now I'll point out that my texts that I worked with for, for my for my dissertation in my book were considerably simpler <laughs> than the than the text that you worked with because the most of the manuscripts that I studied were were written for Pennsylvania German children. So it was, you know, it's it's a different level of complexity, perhaps. Um, but I, I very much agree with what you're saying about you know, how undertaking that kind of language study opens up a, a cache of source materials that otherwise would be largely unavailable. And another point that I would add to that is sort of a, just a, a footnote, I guess, is that you know, I personally was almost deterred from taking on this particular research topic, the, the religious and intellectual foundations of Pennsylvania German manuscript culture, mm -hmm. because I felt surely you know, there are others who can do this better, right? who already have the skills, who already know the things and can just do a better job than I could. And what I quickly realized is that, you know, there, there aren't actually that many people doing this kind of work no, there in, aren't. in this area. And so to be sure, I, I, I'm sure I could go out and find people who could probably do a better job and who already have the skills, but they're not doing research in this area. Right. And we sort of made the comment earlier about that there's this, you know, dark, dusty attic 
in which a lot of these figures in Pennsylvania history live because of you know, how complex the topic is. And that's true. And that means that, you know, and you all are welcome to try their hand at doing this kind of work because it, it's, you know, it, it's not, while it is a vibrant research area, you know, it's, I don't get the sense that um, it's well-trod ground necessarily, at least in the, in the current generation. I know. Yeah. I, that's, that's been something that is continually, uh, I've just sort of noticed continually is, um, I mean, Ephrata is a great example of this, you know, we've had a lot of really great work on Ephrata that has come out, but there's still so much that hasn't been even looked at by anyone. And there's still so much more work to do. And I, I just want to respond to a previous thing. Please don't, I do not sell yourself short, Alex, in the work that you did in Word in the Wilderness. And again, as I've, as I've said now a few times to you and, and on the show, you, your, 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 your way of acknowledging and, and demonstrating the sophistication and erudition of Pennsylvania German religious material text, I think is kind of, I th- I'm, I hope in the future people might look back on this little period of Pennsylvania German studies. And I have a feeling that Alexander Ames name will kind of come first and then maybe a few other names will come second. So anyway, please don't sell yourself short. And I also just to respond to one, I know exactly what you mean about um, knowing enough German to, to work with your material, but also not knowing enough German to have like a normal conversation. I often feel like, I don't know if you've ever seen the show, The Office, but there's an episode where someone is trying to set up a printer and uh, this and the instructions are in German. And Dwight, this Pennsylvania, who, this character who is actually Pennsylvania German, is uh is like oh i can read german and and he he uh i forget what what he says but at the end of it he he says something to the effect of my german is mostly 19th century and mostly religious and uh i feel like that all the time <laughs> like i could i could really i could really drop into the 17th century and you know sing a hymn or two but other than that i'm kind of useless yeah, I, I feel very much the same way, and um, I wonder what I would sound like if I went to Germany and just tried to have an, you know, a normal conversation. It would be um, perhaps a bizarre experience for all concerned. But right. I so appreciate your your warm words, and it really means the world to me. And I think this sort of, you know, it's it's probably healthy to maintain a level of humility and apprehension, knowing just how great the challenges are, but but also wonderful to hear. The, the high regard in which you hold the work that I've been able to do. And I feel very much the same about the work that you have produced. And I think you're right. I think that this is a, perhaps a moment in Pennsylvania German studies that there could be a transition, a pivot, mm-hmm. not that there's been anything wrong before you were all standing on the shoulders of giants of previous generations. But I, I do get the sense that there is an awakening to the, I guess the wider implications of these topics, of these people, of, of these sources that we have at our disposal. Perhaps it's, you know, the natural result of sort of the Atlantic world approach uh, to early American history, to a broader material texts approach, the interdisciplinary scholarship. I mean, you, you, with the project that you undertook is so interdisciplinary. I think that it could be that this is a moment when, um, you know, Pennsylvania German studies will start to maybe be a little bit more outward looking. Right. Um, I think the previous generations, because of the richness of the source material, have have been inward looking, and that's been very helpful and has produced incredible work. And I think now it's that big so what question. Right. You know, what does this teach us about the wider world and about the significance of 
Pennsylvania and Philadelphia. I mean, I have to remind myself from where I live in East Falls in Philadelphia, you know, I'm maybe a mile from uh, where Christopher Sauer lived. I'm, you know, a mile in the other direction from where Kelpius lived. I mean, it's a pretty amazing heritage that we are sitting on top of here in the city. I, I, I've felt that way many times. Yeah. I, I make that point a lot in the dissertation, actually, that, um, Philadelphia at the, at that, in the time we're concerned with was a small town and it's not a small town now in terms of population, but in terms of geography, it absolutely is. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, thank you so much, Tim, for sharing your research with me today and for reflecting on this process that you undertook to, to do your project and to bring Kelpius uh, to modern audiences. I hope that this is interesting to our listeners, both for you know, to, to learn more about Kelpius, but also to think about how the work of uncovering and interpreting a character like him uh, to modern times is undertaken. Thank you so much, Alex. As I said, I, I mean, it's such a delight and honor to be on one of my favorite podcasts, Cloister Talk. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll just look forward to, to continuing this conversation well into the future. Thanks for listening to Cloister Talk. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope you will also consider reading my book, The Word in the Wilderness, Popular Piety, and the Manuscript Arts in Early Pennsylvania. To purchase a copy, just visit psupress.org, or you can also request it from your favorite local bookseller or library. Please note that Penn State Press is a nonprofit scholarly publisher and part of the Penn State University Libraries. Your purchase of the book supports the work of nonprofit peer reviewed academic publishing, a vital component of the United States information landscape in the 21st century. Please also check out the new Word in the Wilderness official study guide available at wordandwilderness.comslash clubs, which can help structure your reading of the book and point you in the direction of further resources. On the next episode of Cloister Talk, we'll visit Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to learn about Pennsylvania German calligraphy traditions there in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, largely viewed through the collections of Lancaster history, a wonderful repository of books, manuscripts, artworks, and museum artifacts documenting life in Lancaster County. I had a great time doing research there, and I hope you'll check out the episode when it's released. Research and production of Season 4 of Cloister Talk was supported by the Jacob M. Price Digital Fellowship at the William L. Clements Library, a rare book and manuscript library at the University of Michigan that specializes in print and manuscript materials focused on the history of North America and the Caribbean, with particular strengths in 18th and 19th century American history. Learn more at clements.umich.edu. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to continuing our conversation on the next episode of Cloister Talk.